There's a lot happening in Canada right now, so I thought I'd bring on one of my favorite YouTubers, Christo Avalis. He is a historian and, of course, a YouTuber, uh, focuses a lot on Canadian politics, but also discusses American politics as well. And we're going to uh, talk about uh, what's happening with uh, Guaido and Trudeau, as well as the conservative leadership race in Canada. Christo, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me again. No problem. So uh, let's start with, with uh, Venezuela, Guaido, and Trudeau. So after the failed uh, or the, the attempted coup uh, in Venezuela with uh, having Guaido as the interim leader backed by Canada, the Lima Group, and, and the U.S., there is now this, I guess, multi-country tour that Guaido is going on, including with Canada, to try and sell the idea that he is still the leader in Venezuela, even though he's not. So I don't know. Want to give me some some uh, understanding here of what is going on and 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 this meeting with with Trudeau and what this is all about? Yeah, well, this is all part of like Trudeau's broader Latin American project, and also Christia Freeland, who's moved on from that portfolio now it's Champagne, but you know, the foreign affairs minister, which is to basically adopt a pretty, pretty clearly anti-socialist, anti-progressive line with regard to South and Central America, choosing to align with neoliberals at best, but but frankly, you know, far right forces at worst with people like Bolsonaro. And this is all part of a general project by the ostensibly progressive Trudeau government to basically pick sides of people like Guaido and Bolsonaro and the forces in Chile and forces in Honduras over democratic forces. Of course, we've also seen it with Bolivia as well. And with Guaido, you know, Canada played a really key role through the Lima Group, which, you know, doesn't include the U.S., but sort of follows that general American line. And Canada sort of playing a legitimizing role in that working with people like Bolsonaro to oppose, you know, the, the democratically elected president in Venezuela, which is Maduro still, whatever you think of him, uh, and and to uh, implement a coup, uh, you know, supported by Guaido uh, and much of, you know, the imperialist West, for lack of a better term. And as you noted, the coup is failing. And so Canada still maintains that he is the legitimate ruler of Venezuela. And, you know, Canadian cabinet ministers, the prime minister himself met with him over the past couple days. And this has been seen, at least among left Canadians, as a pretty controversial move because the Venezuelan society in no functional way recognizes this man as the actual leader of their country. And I think unlike the, Boliv the, 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 the Bolivian coup, which unfortunately seems to have succeeded, uh, the Venezuelan one failed. And I think that people are just pretending it didn't fail here in Canada. Yeah, it's 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 hilarious. So uh, there is a, a tweet that went out from Justin Trudeau. Um, I'm going to read it here. It says, Canada stands with the people of Venezuela as they pursue free and fair elections and human rights. In our meeting today, I commended interim president uh, uh, Juan Guaido for the leadership he's shown in his efforts to return democracy to Venezuela and offered him our continued support. And then I also watched a bit of the uh, the news conference you, you kind of mentioned it there with um, the the foreign minister and, and Guaido. They called him Mr. President. Um, they also said uh, Maduro is the, is the brutal and illegitimate regime, um, which considering like it's hilarious that they're focused on, oh, return to democracy. Meanwhile, here they are trying to overtake a, a democratically uh, elected government. Yes, there were some, you know, some questions about uh, that election, but generally the questions appear to be from people who support the Guaido government and not necessarily, so it's not really clear if there was actually any issues with, with that election uh, with Maduro. But um, like 
the media coverage on this has been terrible. So I read a, a CBC article on this. I read a CTV article on this. They don't mention any of the the questions about this interim, uh, this attempted interim government or this, this interim leader with, with Guaido. They, they really just give you the one side. And this tends to be an issue with, I notice with a lot of uh, foreign policy uh, discussion when it comes to the mainstream press. They sort of just take the official line and they don't, they, they rarely give you the other side. So what is your, I mean, what is your thought uh, or your thoughts about that? And basically, like how the media approaches foreign policy issues, including including um, uh, with Venezuela here. Yeah, certainly that's a trend I've been noticing that like, you know, uh, they're like the, the differences between the conservative and the liberal parties in Canada is exaggerated. There are differences and they exist. But on like foreign policy, like Justin Trudeau. Andrew Scheer, whoever the next conservative leader may be, we'll talk about that later. And Donald Trump and and most Democrats, probably with the exception of Bernie Sanders, all basically line up with a position that like no democracy, unless it's a democracy, we agree with in developing countries. Um, and that's the, the the reality that we've been seeing with how the Canadian media and most every Canadian source of influence is approaching Latin America broadly. I mean, certainly with Venezuela, there was just the assumption that like Maduro was 100% the bad guy mm -hmm. and anyone opposing him is ultimately a champion of democracy. We saw it as well with the coverage of Bolivia where all of the attacks on indigenous people and socialists and the, the general thuggery was at least buried during the early days of the coup. Eventually, it started getting out a little bit more. And all the attention was on the supposed unconstitutionality of, you know, of Morales' tenure, which of course was not true. Uh, and everyone just assumed, based on a report from a biased OAS organization, that like this was a false election and that Añez and her people we're launching a, a preservation coup of democracy. And the media just reported this uncritically. And it's 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 fundamentally rooted in this like near total party consensus in Canada, with the exception, at least on some cases with the NDP, that that they, these coups are a good thing. I mean, we saw it with Bolivia, where the Green Party, the Conservatives, the Liberals, basically everybody supported the coup, said Morales was the bad guy. And Añez was, if imperfect, the good guy in this situation. And this goes all the way back to the Brazilian election. I don't know if you remember this. We might have talked about this just like just between us, like off camera, that when when Maduro, excuse me, when Bolsonaro was getting elected and of course, Bolsonaro ran, ran on an openly homophobic, transphobic, anti-indigenous campaign, like it really was fundamentally designed to like basically talk about the end of indigenous cultures. Like that was his goal. Mm -hmm. um, the Canadian press focused on one thing, investment opportunities for Canadian companies. If you're a Canadian investor, you can buy in agricultural companies, you can buy in mining companies and other resource companies because Bolsonaro is going to unleash the economic potential of Brazil by clearing out environmental laws and indigenous protection laws. And in so doing, you could make some real money off this. And that was the CBC's primary narrative about Bolsonaro. And so you can see how this is all connected. 
the Canadian capitalist class, along with the two principal parties of Canadian capital, the Liberals and Conservatives, along with the auxiliary party of Canadian capital in some ways, the, the Green Party, uh, are, are taking an openly, like fundamentally pro-coup agenda in Latin America. And only the NDP, in some limited ways, because on Venezuela the party was less than clear earlier last year, uh, mm-hmm. is, is sort of suggesting that, hey, maybe these coups aren't really about democracy, but the, but the preservation of, of, of elite corporate interests. But as we know here in Canada, more and more people are starting to realize that you know, our mining companies, our resource companies, when they go abroad, you know, participate in a lot of the, the actions, the assaults, the attacks uh, on local communities, on indigenous people, on workers activists, on environmental activists that really destabilize communities, all for the benefit of, you know, a, a sliver of the Canadian wealthy elite. And that's who the CBC was addressing. And it, it really is like a systematic issue. And it's not about democracy, because if we were really interested in launching coups to replace autocratic regimes, we wouldn't be selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. We would yeah. be arming rebels to overthrow the Saudi Arabian government if we really were consistent on the matter. And we're clearly not. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about the, the NDP reaction to um, to Guaido, to Venezuela, and to these uh, these coups, these attempted coups, and foreign policy in Canada, or uh, foreign policy for Canada in, uh, generally. So, because there, there tends to be a mixed message here from the NDP that I'm yeah. seeing. Like, oftentimes yeah. leadership is saying something different than what, you know, Nikki Ashton or Charlie Angus uh, are saying on Twitter. So give me, uh, I guess, the, the sense of how the NDP feel about the... Uh, this issue with with Guaido, but also generally about Canadian foreign policy. Yeah, I mean the, the the you're right. The messaging is mixed, and it's not always good, right? I could say that as a as an as an NDP member and somebody who covers the party on my channel, and and I've done it in mainstream media as well. On some of the issues, they've been much better. On Bolivia, the party was 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 largely bang on. Immediately, you had a lot of MPs come out. You eventually had Jagmeet Singh a few days later come out with an official statement, uh, you know, decrying the coup noting that it was an attack on indigenous people and that was really good but on venezuela the party was very much divided where you know the the official party line sort of tried to ride the line a little bit but also suggest that you know what was happening in venezuela required some sort of response but then you had more more definitively anti-coup responses from people like nikki ashton from candidates like sven robinson taking a more you know direct stand you also see it on particular issues. I mean, I think the NDP on the recent Iran issue had the best line. So, for instance, while Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party were basically parroting the Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden style, uh, you know, the, the, we, we want to de-escalate, but the, Soleimani was an evil man and mm-hmm. no one's going to be crying for him type thing. Basically blaming Iran without really blaming Iran, trying to have it both ways. Singh and Charlie Angus, for instance, both came out very quickly and said that, you know, Canada's number one priority is to not get dragged into a Trump war of aggression, which was 100 percent right, the, the line, right line to take, which was basically the same line as Bernie Sanders. And so that was great. But again, th- there's a fundamental, I think, failure to have a consistent message on progressive policy. So, for example, on Israel, some N- NDP MPs are strongly critical and rightfully so about the Israeli apartheid state. And then other other MPs basically take the side of the Israeli Defense Force almost uncritically, showing that that issue in particular really divides people. And I would say that specifically in Latin America, 
the party activist base is pretty much 100% against these coups or largely against these coups. But there seems to be this drive for respectability by certain elements of the party structure Mm, that limits their ability to be critical. And on Israel, I would say it's similar, although the party might be more divided there because there are elements of the party that have Zionist roots and there are elements of the party that are more critical of of the the Zionist project in Israel. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, I guess you you kind of answered it there, but what is the what is attributing to this this division? Because uh, as you say, I think it is it does appear to be something of um, they're trying to appeal to authority and, and or uh, appeal to uh, essentially what the what the the ongoing narrative is. So the NDP definitely have at least the leadership. They definitely have this this fear of bucking the establishment of of changing of um, saying something different when it comes to foreign policy issues than what is typically reported or or what you know the Trudeau government is supporting for whatever reason so uh, do, do you think it has to do uh, with with them being I don't know unaware or or misinformed on these issues or do you think it's because there is actually institutional power that is that they are knowingly pushing the NDP in this more establishment direction as opposed to um, looking at the facts on the ground and actually uh, representing the best interests of, of people like Where's the divide there? I think it's largely timidity. That's what I think it is. Because again, it's not, if they were consistently in line with Trudeau and Scheer and and, and whatever on these issues, you would say that it's based on the fact that the party might just believe those, 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 the foreign policy line. But again, as we've noted, the, 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 the NDP response to Iran was fundamentally different than what we saw from the other parties. The NDP response to Bolivia was fundamentally different. The NDP response to uh, even the criticism of the Saudi Arabian arms deal has been different. You know, there, there are differences. The NDP, for instance, being the only well, the Greens as well, but the NDP being the only major party to criticize Canada's safe third country agreement with the United States. Mm-hmm. is fundamentally different. The NDP has been critical of the the new NAFTA in a way that the liberals and conservatives haven't been. So there are foreign policy and like in international d- diplomatic policy differences. But I do think that at the end of the day, the party really does have this fear that because the the Canadian media, especially on foreign policy issues, is so ubiquitous in its hegemony, its its homogenousness on these questions that they worry about being perceived as offside. Mm. And it's tricky because when they take the correct position, they get shellacked by the mainstream media, uh, by the CBC, by the CTV for being not serious for siding with dictators and and totalitarians and when they take the when they take the wrong stand and they side with the the coup a lot of people say that the NDP is a, a bad party and I will say in the defense of the NDP that they often get less credit for taking the right stand and more criticism for taking the wrong stand so I think some on the left in Canada incentivize the NDP taking the wrong stand because the NDP gets far less leeway when they make mistakes than Bernie Sanders does and the American left. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges. If the NDP knew that the entire Canadian left would have their back when they stuck their neck out, I think they'd be more likely to do it. But of course, it could also be a chicken and egg thing because the NDP has been less than consistent on taking the right foreign policy stand. Maybe some people don't fully trust them. Yeah, that's fair. 
Um, Let's move on out to the conservative leadership race in Canada. So there were a few potential contenders that uh, dropped out that I thought would be in this. Uh, Rona Ambrose comes to mind. But um, you have uh, Peter McKay now uh, launching his bid. And it seems like, I don't know, what are your thoughts on this race and and who may end up as the conservative leader here? Because I I just feel like it seems sort of obvious it might be him, but there could be others that that are uh, at, at play here. Yeah, so like on my YouTube channel, and I know we talked about it like the election night, I think, but the day after the election, I'm like, Shear's done. Like we don't, like I don't know if it'll be right now or if it'll take a few months, uh, but Shear's done. Uh, there's no way he's staying on. No one likes him. The social conservatives questionably don't think he was social conservative enough, and the moderates think he was too social conservative. No one really seems to support him right now. The guy's done. And I said Peter McKay is the most likely person to, to replace him. And I think that right now it does seem to be leaning towards uh, you know, McKay, not 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 a coronation, but a lot of people seem to be stepping aside. I mean, Jean Charest was going to run. He was a former progressive conservative leader, former Quebec liberal premier. Rona Ambrose was the interim leader between Stephen Harper and Andrew Scheer. And a lot of people like, I, you know, neither you or I are conservatives or probably would ever vote conservative, but a lot of people you know, gave her praise from an objective perspective for the job she did. And there was also Pierre Polyevre, not really well liked by most non-conservatives, but seen as, you know, like a, a young force within his own party. All of these people were basically mauling a run. Polyevre and Charest were reportedly ready to announce, and they both at the last minute said no, and Rona Ambrose said no. And I wonder if there's a sort of an understanding that maybe Peter McKay has something of a lock on this mm. and that there's no use, you know, running versus him at this stage. And I think the narrative around McKay, again, whether this is a, a, an accurate narrative or not, is that he's seen as something of a moderate. He's from the East Coast. He's from the Maritimes and will have a better chance of appealing to voters outside of like the Western bubble. Because we have to remember that the conservatives won the popular vote in the 2019 election. They, they won more votes than Justin Trudeau, but they, they they won by such huge margins in Alberta and Saskatchewan that they mm-hmm. wasted a lot of votes. Yeah. And so I bet there's a, you know, it's like we need to get somebody who can win us some votes in Ontario, Quebec, and in, you know, parts of the Maritimes and in parts of British Columbia where we like lost some close elections. And that's our path to victory. You know, we can't win any more seats in Saskatchewan. We can't win that many more in, in, in Manitoba even. We need to win seats in eastern Canada. Maybe McKay is the guy to do it. And I think that that's one of the narratives that's growing out of this leadership race. Do you think there is any uh, fear or potential that um, with Peter McKay potentially being the leader, that the conservatives would lose their base that are socially conservative? Because McKay does seem to be a little more, uh, I guess, moderate when it comes to comes to issues like, you know, gay marriage, for example. Um, uh, Like, where does that fit in? Do uh, are social conservatives enough of a contingent within Canada that they can actually, you know, potentially destroy a uh, a, a race in you know in, in two years, three years for the conservatives if they don't vote for for the conservative party? I don't know if there's a risk that they'll lose their vote. I mean, technically, the PPC still technically exists for Americans who listen. We sort of have like a right right wing party called the People's Party. Um, they ran in pretty much every riding last election, but didn't end up winning a seat. Their leader lost their seat. And so they're basically, I guess, kind of comatose right now, yeah. but they still technically exist. So you'd say maybe like 
if there's enough disgruntlement with, say, somebody who's perceived as not conservative enough, they might go to that party. But I find that when conservatives are out of power, especially, they're less likely to splinter. So the broad history of the conservative party in Canada is that they were one of the two original parties like the liberal party. And they're, you know, like the liberal party, they were sort of the only party that consistently existed in elections until the CCF NDP was created in the 1930s. And Canada sort of became like a three and a half party system. But in the like late 80s, early 90s, there was a conservative government here in Canada under Brian Mulroney. Uh, and some conservatives, especially in the West, were discontented with that for a variety of reasons, social and economic ideological reasons. And this led to the creation of like the Reform Party slash the Canadian Alliance, which was uh, actually became bigger and more powerful than the original conservative party, which was called the Progressive Conservatives. And for about I don't know, a decade or so, uh, 15 years or so, they basically existed with two conservative parties in the country, and it pretty much guaranteed uh, big liberal majorities every election. Like, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And so eventually what happened is that in the, in the early 2000s, Peter McKay, the final leader of the progressive conservatives, and Stephen Harper, the final leader of like the Reform Alliance, merged the parties and Harper became the first leader of that party and would form a, you know, a, a nearly 10 year government under that unified conservative party, just called the Conservative Party of Canada. And so I don't think you're going to see a split of the conservatives when they're out of power because they have a shared enemy. They will grumble about it. But at the end of the day, they'll line up behind whoever it is because because they want to stop Trudeau. It's the same thing in Alberta where the right wing split in Alberta, you know, the Wild Rose split happened, you know, a few years ago because there was a long conservative government in Alberta where a lot of right wingers felt they were being taken for granted. But as soon as the NDP won, they like they, they, within a year or two, mm. they, 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 they got right back together and now they're merged again. And so I think if you're going to see a conservative, you know, exodus because of discontentment, it'll happen after some years of the conservatives being in power. Yeah, that is one thing with with conservative uh, voters generally, they tend to vote party line like they will definitely like, you know, question certain aspects, whatever side they are uh, on on certain issues. But when it comes to attaining power, they know to get out there and vote and and ensure that their person um, or their party has power because they don't want their, you know, so-called enemy uh, political enemy to, to to have the power over them. So that's something that I think progressives, a lot of progressives can kind of learn from that in a way where it's important to be engaged in the process, even if we have issues on, you know, certain policy positions, it's important to still have power. And then when you have power, question that power when they're in power with uh, your with uh, your own criticisms as a way to try and, you know, evolve the the government or, or politicians or the process, whatever it is. Um, to be able to work, you know, through that way when you when you still have power. Uh, one last issue uh, that I, I didn't uh, bring up beforehand, but I think it's it's something that I, I've been thinking about because we're potentially moving into a situation where there could be a Bernie Sanders presidency. Now, I don't mm -hmm. want to you know I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it could happen. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on how that could potentially impact Canada. Let's say Bernie Sanders does become president. What, what sort of impact would that have on, on politics in, in Canada or would it have any impact at all? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been talking about this. I'm actually, uh, you know, writing a piece for a publication right now where this is one of the things mm. that I've been thinking about for the piece. So this lines up really well. Um, I think, well, on the whole, the first things first, every American president has an immense impact on Canada, like every president has. So like Bernie will be no different in that general sense. The United States is the world's biggest superpower in pretty much every single way. And so the American president matters to everybody, but especially because we neighbor them for thousands of kilometers and the majority of our trade goes to the United States and a big chunk of their trade goes to us, but not nearly to the same dependency. Any American president matters. So, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders will matter and will affect things. Now, the question is, how will Bernie Sanders affect things? And I think it will embolden progressives in Canada for a long time here in Canada. Uh, especially when like a, a, a really bad Republican is president, but not even just then. Um, there's a kind of smug complacency among Canadians, mm -hmm. which is to say we're better than the United States. Ergo, we're good enough. Sure, <laughs> a million Canadians can't get their medication. Sure, hundreds of Canadians die a year because they can't get their medication. Sure, six million Canadians can't get access to dental care. But at the end of the day, we have some part of our health care covered through a universal single single payer plan. So it's great. Or, you know, you know, the United States overrepresents African-Americans about three times in prisons relative to their populations. You know, the Americans are clearly more racist than us. Then again, when you look at the data, indigenous people are six times the population in prisons in Canada vis-a-vis -vis their, their general population. So there's this sense in Canada that even when we're worse than the Americans on an issue, because I think our treatment of indigenous people in some ways is more systemically racist than African-Americans treatments in some ways. But we just think we're better because axiomatically we're better than the states. And I think that a Bernie Sanders presidency, even if he doesn't achieve all of his goals, but if Bernie wipes student debt, um, makes university, public universities and colleges free, that's something that no Canadian province has that mm -hmm. we don't have in Canada, even Quebec, where they have like lower tuition rates. You still got to pay tuition. You still get student debt in some cases. Mm -hmm. Universal pharmacare and dental care. Quebec sort of in a way has pharmacare, but nationally, Canadians don't have access to dental care or pharmacare as part of our health care plan. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All would include it. And so I think that whether it's on social programs, whether it's on fighting racial injustice, whether it's on like a worker and environmental, you know, centric trade, you know, regime, Bernie Sanders will move, you know, not just the United States to the left, but the world to the left mm -hmm. in some ways. And I do feel that like it will show Canadians that, like this narrative that like you have to vote conserv liberal to stop conservatives because Canadians you can't elect a left-wing government, it'll blow that out of the water because if Bernie Sanders can win the Democratic nomination, and he can, and yeah. win the presidency, and he can, like we, the data's there, then Jagmeet Singh could become prime minister. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, with a Singh, you know, prime minister and, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders presidency, then like we could do some really, really good things in North America and Alamo in, in, in Mexico. Like imagine the trade deals, imagine the... The focus on increasing unionization. This is key. Like often in Canada, we focus on like outsourcing of our jobs to the to the developing world, right? And mm -hmm. it's often unfortunately tinged with elements of like xenophobia and racism. But but often our jobs get outsourced to right to work states in the USA. 
Like the auto jobs don't just leave for Mexico or for Asia. They leave for Alabama. Yeah. Like, you know, because Alabama, like, you know, they they, they don't have unions. Like they don't have as many unionized workers in those industries there. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders wants to double the unionization rate. I personally think it's it's one of the most undercovered things about Bernie's campaign is his worker policy. Like it's it's really undercovered both by his his enemies and by his supporters. But like if Bernie Sanders raises standards of work conditions in the U.S., which are lower than in most of Canada, that'll help Canadian workers, too. So I'm like super excited for a Bernie presidency because like as a as a I'd like to think a good person. I want to see hundreds of millions of Americans have a better life. But as a selfish Canadian, <laughs> I want us to actually look to the U.S., and if we want to be smug about it, we'll actually have to do something to maintain our moral superiority. And that's only going to happen if Bernie wins. I think that's exactly right. And also, yeah. just to take it a full circle here, I also don't think we would see what happened in Venezuela with Guaido. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened had Bernie been president. Um, and and those, those you know, these, these coup attempts, these ongoing coup attempts in the global south, like these sorts of things wouldn't be happening. Um, under a Bernie presidency where, where you have a world power actually represented by somebody that invests into, you know, into into uh, working people, into uh, the middle class, the poor, someone that actually cares about people, you wouldn't see what the U.S. foreign policy has been over the past, you know, 60 years. So I think that would be a, a massive improvement. And I think you you completely nailed it there. And I mean, yeah, 100 yeah, so, percent. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, the candidate doesn't always follow the U.S. foreign policy lockstep. But we do follow it pretty closely generally. Mm -hmm. And so you're right that if what if because like not only is Bernie Sanders the most left wing, you know, presidential candidate, probably since Eugene Debs, um, he's definitely the most left wing on foreign policy, like since Debs as well. Right. Like and so imagine if it's not just somebody who's ostensibly left wing in terms of wanting to give people health care, but like left wing in terms of how America relates to the world. That will shape Canada's foreign policy globally, but I think specifically in Latin America. Absolutely. Christo, uh, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter. It's just uh, Christo Avalis. Uh, David will have the name in the description. It's just that all one word. Same thing on Facebook. You can find me there. YouTube, the channel's name is just Christo Avalis. Uh, and you can find me covering Canadian politics. More now lately because of the, you know, the U.S. election. I've been talking a lot of Bernie Sanders. So I think if you like David's stuff, you'll probably like my stuff too. That's true. Chris does awesome work. Check out his channel. Subscribe. And again, I'll have all the links below in the description box. Check them out. Christo, thanks again. Thanks for having me.